Well, you know, um, I knew that when I left, the, the program was in good shape. I remember Ralph, uh, Ralph Lee telling me that uh, he understood why I was leaving, but he said, you, you're, you're leaving a, a 25-win team. And sure enough, they went 25-4, and four, I think, that next year. So I felt good from a personal standpoint that I wasn't jumping ship and leaving the cupboard bare. Uh, but on the other hand, I wish I had that decision to do over again because I never would have left. Welcome into the Xavier Basketball 100 Years Podcast brought to you by Heartland Bank. I, Brad Redford, will be your host as we relive some of the greatest Xavier Hoops moments of the last 100 years. New interviews will be made public each week. What about enjoy this conversation with former Xavier can, head coach Bob Stack. Uh, I mean, travel may be a little bit different now than it was um, during your time at Xavier, but do you have any memories of traveling that kind of stand out to you? Yeah, well, well, two um, two stories. One, uh, I think it was, it was my first year, we played uh, our first two games at home, and then we, we played in the Indiana Classic in Bloomington. And I had a play at the end who ranked the number one in the country. Was Isaiah Thomas's freshman year. And, uh, you know, we played in a couple of half, lost, uh, played uh, Seton Hall in the, uh, in the consolation game and had a chance to win it and kind of just let it slip. And we lost right at the end. And I was, I was uh, pissed off. And I said, everybody's on the bus at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning when we're heading back to Cincinnati. So I'm on the bus. It's, it's about a couple minutes before 9. And we, we have two players that are that are not on the bus yet. And I looked at my watch, and when the, when the hour struck nine, I said to the bus driver, let's go. And I'm sitting in the first seat, and I look in the rearview mirror, and I see two guys, both of them seniors, running with their, their baggage, their, their suitcases. They're running after the bus. And if, if Terry Cobb, I would have left him. Terry Coppler didn't say Bob, uh, how are they going to get home? So I said, well, that, that would be a problem. So I said, oh, stop the bus. And I, they got on the bus, and I, I, was, I gave them uh, several choice words from the time they got from the front of the bus to the back of the bus to their seats. And then we, we went home to Cincinnati in complete silence. So uh, that was uh, one little story. Um, I gave you. I gave you two more. One, another one was uh, uh, the players called it Moorhead Monday, and we played at Moorhead State, and um, we didn't. Uh, we didn't do anything that we had practiced. We didn't play hard. We, we went with the band. So um, the next day, I had the whole team out. It was a Sunday. Had a whole team out to my house for a cookout or dinner or what have you, and I didn't say a whole lot. And then uh, we we ran the next day at practice uh, without a ball for about two hours. Oh. And uh, they still were for, ask Gary Matz about Moorhead Monday. <laughs> All right. I definitely then, yeah. One more. Uh, we're playing at Pittsburgh and um, it was, uh, I'm trying to think there was a rapper who stayed in the same hotel and um, he's from Long Island city. And uh, Richie Harris, who was from Long Island City, and Victor Fleming, both knew the guy. And so he's all excited. We had like 11 o'clock curfew. 
And about 12 o'clock at night, I get a knock on my sweet door. And I answer the door, and standing there is Richie Harris, Walt McBride, and Ralph Lee. And they, Bootsy Collins, I think the guy's name was. And um, they knocked on the wrong suite. They were looking for the the rapper. And I told them, you better get your asses back in in, uh, the room. And if we don't win this game tomorrow, there's going to be hell to pay. So the next morning, get up, we're ready to go to to, uh, shoot around. And uh, I I get on the elevator and uh, it goes to the next floor. The elevator door is open. And who's who's there joking, getting ready to get on the elevator, but Ralph, Walt, and Richie. And they had to get, get in the elevator and ride with me down. And it must have been the longest, about eight eight floor ride they've ever been on. But we did win the game, so <laughs> well, that was a good deal. If it would have ended in a loss, it would have ended up a lot worse for those guys. I could oh, I, I, I'm sure of that. Okay, so like, and during that time, like, were you pissed off all day in the days after, or, or did you go back in your hotel room and laugh? I'm, no, I, I, I would, I would let it. <laughs> I would let it stay with me for a while, unfortunately. Okay, all right, all right. But um, until until the next day, and then then I'd um, you know obviously have to get ready for the next practice, the next game, whatever it might be. So yeah. um, I recovered. Come on over to now to run a successful business, you need to develop a strong relationship with your accountant, your attorney, and most importantly, your community banker. If you find it hard to get advice from your bank, maybe it's time to consider Heartland. I'm Scott McComb, CEO. Come on over to Heartland, where banking really feels good. Rare banking feels good. Member FDIC, equal housing lender. Okay, so be sure to check out Heartland Bank right after this 100 Years podcast interview. Um, all right, well, I'll get off topic there. Well, let's, let's take you back in time a little bit to your Xavier career. Let's go all the way back to 1979 and the interview with Dr. Bill Daly, uh, who, you know, really, who many say that the two of you together really had the vision for Xavier basketball and where it could go. Five years before 79, Xavier dropped football, and there was discussion about moving the basketball program all the way down to, to Vision 3. Uh, so kind of take me back to that interview um, and just how you guys put that vision together uh, and, you know, obviously did such a great job during your tenure. Well, you know, Bill Daly, um, we had some great conversations uh, prior to uh, the interview, uh, during the interview process, and then afterwards. And, um, you know, we had we were pretty much on the same page with regard to what direction we thought the program would go. To be perfectly honest, I wasn't aware of anything with regard to the uh, possibility of dropping to Division Three uh, until after I got there. Had I known that, I, I, I might not have uh, <laughs> taken the job. But um, you know, the, the thing is that I had the great cooperation by a number of people, by the administration. Um, you know, they uh, pretty much uh, didn't give a uh, open check checkbook to, to what we're going to try to do, but they increased funds as far as recruiting is concerned, uh, budget, et cetera. And um, we, uh, we were able to move forward. We improved the schedule uh, as we moved along. We uh, obviously being in the, uh, the Midwestern City Conference at that time uh, really helped because uh, we had something to play for other than just an independent schedule like they had in the past. 
but um, and then a few years down the line, we're able to, you know, move games to the Cincinnati Gardens where we had uh, very good success and were able to increase the crowds. And then, um, you know, as time moved along, uh, obviously with the Synthouse Center, which I think is just a tremendous arena. So things have kind of like going from uh, back in the planning stages when I first got there to executing some, uh, you know, a game plan uh, and, Things have progressed to a point where I think Xavier is one of the best programs, uh, certainly in the Big East, and certainly uh, can be considered a national contender now. Yeah, and do you remember the moment when you were offered the job? Uh, do you remember that conversation? Was that in person mm-hmm. or over the phone? And maybe just the level of excitement that you had, uh, you, based on kind of what I read, that was your first head coaching position. Um, so just, you know, how you approached that, how excited you were, um, and, and how excited you were to, to get that program started with your leadership. Well, I, I can't remember the specific uh, time I was offered. I'm sure I was offered off the phone. But um, to be honest with you, um, we were right in the middle of uh, the end of our Ivy League season at 10. And uh, we had clinched the Ivy League championship, and we were going to go to the NCAA. So I didn't want anything to be announced until after we finished the NCAA tournament. Uh, so I was much uh, more involved in you know, what we were doing at Penn at the time. And that was the year we went to the 1979 Final Four. Um, so from the time I was offered the job and unofficially accepted it till the time I actually uh, was announced, was probably about uh, three or four weeks. So it was, um, in my mind, I had other things I had to do, but in the back of my mind, I certainly was was planning uh, as to, you know, what I want to do with staff and what some of the things that I might want to do in terms of recruiting and so forth. But, um, you know, being uh, an important time for any team to get into the NCAA tournament, that was much my focus at that point. Yeah, the 1983 team, that, that led to some uh, legitimate postseason success. Trip to the NCAA tournament, some big-time players on that roster with Jeff Jenkins, Victor Fleming, Dexter Bailey, Ralph Lee, uh, Walt McBride. Can you talk to me about that team uh, and how they were able to kind of get over that hurdle? Um, well, you know, it was, it was um, our full complement of uh, recruited players and uh, I think that was Tony Hicks's senior year, which is, he was one of the uh, member of the first class uh, that we were recruited when I first got there, and um, and we had so we had Steve Wolf, who was uh, transferred from NC State, and as you mentioned, you know Victor and Dexter and and uh, Jeff and and Ralph and Walt. And, um, we had we had great depth. We had uh, you know some people that could score the ball. And we we were able to do some things defensive that I wanted to do, and. Um, they were a, a, a team that totally bought in, and I think that was the turning point, that we had all our guys um, that we had recruited. Uh, we had established, um, you know, over a four-year period or so that, uh, you know, how we wanted to play, what were the things we were, we were going to demand of the players, the expectation and the accountability that we wanted of the players. And uh, to the, all their guys' credit, they all bought in, and we worked very well as a team. And, uh, had a great run there at the end of the season. We were able to beat uh, Lyle in the finals of the tournament in Evansville and get the bid to the NCAA. Well, Steve Wolf is going to be mad that I didn't bring him up in, in the first round of talking about players. So I, I have to. Well, you know him. something? 
I, I understand that, and uh, I, I'm in your defense. I'm sorry if I put any undue pressure on you by bringing his name up instead of you. No, not at all. Steve's just going to give me crap for that. That's my only thing, because I'm going to make Steve no, listen to this, and then he's going to call me. He's going to get mad at me like he didn't, didn't bring it up. So you talk about your team buying in, and you hear a lot of coaches say that, like the team bought in, they bought in. Uh, you know, what? When was there a moment, was there a guy that you knew that this team was ready for postseason success? They they were one unit. You know, that's the biggest challenge with any team, regardless of talent, is is the chemistry there. Because once you start playing with teams that are, are talented, you know, it's one possession, two possession games. That's going to make the difference. And, and you're, it's the teams that buy in and understand each other that ultimately end up having that success. So do, you, do you remember any moment or any game that really stands out to you? Um, off the top of my head, um, I, I think this, this game, although we lost it, might have been one that kind of um, recommitted uh, a lot of players and uh, solidified what we were doing. It was – we played at Loyola Chicago in – February and um, uh, coming from the shoot around uh, uh, during the day at uh, the day of the game, uh, we're in a meeting in my suite and uh, my mother called, said that my, my father was ill and it didn't look good. And um, between the, the, the meeting and game time, my father had passed and um, I didn't say anything to any of the players until after the game. And they just played, you know, I mean, an outstanding uh, game uh, with great passion. And it just seemed to me that, you know, there was my father kind of his guiding hand was helping them along. After the game, we really banded together when I when I told them about my father's passing. Uh, the players were great. And I think we're, we came in, really became a family event. And I think that was kind of the thing that turned everything around um, as far as, you know, continuing with the rest of the season and making it to the NCAA tournament. Who, who on that team was really the leader on the floor? You know, the, the guy in those in those moments when they maybe can't hear the coaching staff in the second half, um, who was the guy that really brought the team together? Maybe a guy that no matter what team you, you coached on, you'd love to have him um, as that kind of coach on the floor. Well, there was two guys. Uh, one was John Shimko, um, and he was, uh, no matter, from the day he got there as a freshman, uh, he just had a, uh, he came from a winning program and um, in high school, and uh, he just he just had a confidence in him and a, and a, a workmanlike attitude that carried over to many others. And he was, you know, even when he was a freshman or a sophomore, uh, he... Uh, he spoke up, and he he uh, demanded accountability. Uh, the other guy, as a freshman, uh, was the same way, and that was Ralph Lake, who was more like the coach on the floor because he was the point guard. We had a great relationship in terms of communication, and and he knew what I wanted, and he conveyed that to players, and and really kept um, a tight rein on on what we were trying to do, and selling it. And, and pushing it on the, on the rest of his teammates. You hear the idea of like there's there's born leaders. Um, you know, I kind of believe that to a degree, especially with a basketball team. You know, you have to have a guy with legitimate talent that can lead. 
um, you know, but what's in between his ears, I don't know how much you can teach that. Did it take much on your end to, you know, push those guys to be in more of a leadership position or was it kind of something naturally, you know, over time they kind of moved into that role? Well, I, I think uh, both uh, John and Ralph were, were both, they, they just, that was their makeup. Uh, they, uh, they had come from programs where th- that was the role that they played and they just uh, felt that, you know, that, that was what they wanted to bring to our team. And they did an excellent job as far as that's concerned. And I think, I, I think it's, it's something that has to be inbred, which with those two, it was, whereas I don't think you could, you know, teach somebody or force somebody uh, into being that type of a leader. Uh, they either are or they aren't. And, um, that's not to say that you know you to if not to be a leader would not uh, make you not a good player, uh, but uh, those two guys, you know, kind of had the infectious type of attitude and ability to uh, convey into others and uh, get them to really um, be a cohesive unit on the floor. Did you look for that in the recruiting process? You know, I'm always curious at how coaches and scouts. You know, how, how can they find that out? I mean, I feel like there's one thing in doing an interview with a player or, uh, you know, going to visit him or talking with a coach, um, you know, and maybe you can ask the right questions to get there. But how do you target that guy? How do you target not just the right guy from a talent perspective, but also a guy that is high IQ, uh, is going to buy into what the coaches are saying and, and turn into a great teammate? Well, I think, you know, you, you try to do as much intel as you can with regard to, you know, uh, finding out from the coach, the high school coach, uh, get a feel for, you know, in a home visit uh, where the parents are coming from as far as the uh, the, the kid is. And and, um, and I, obviously in your relationship with, with the player, uh, you're going to get a, a sense of, of um, you know, what kind of uh, – uh, leader, what kind of player, what kind of attitude, and, and what he brings to the table. So uh, I think it's all part of the process of, of getting to know somebody you're recruiting. And um, back in the day when, when I was at Xavier and, and coaching in college, you were able to do that because there really wasn't a, uh, a limit on a number of contacts, you know, by phone and all the stuff that they have now. So uh, it may be a little bit more difficult to do that at this point. Uh, and things have changed so much as far as you know, college basketball is concerned and the people that transfer in and out and the graduate transfers and uh, all that type of thing make, makes it a little bit more difficult, I think, to really get a handle on, on some of that stuff. Yeah, I, I'm sure the, the personalities, the process is definitely a lot different. And uh, social media has added a whole new aspect, not just for players, but all of humanity in general. And it seems like we don't know how to figure it out. So, all right, we've talked about a lot of good moments, and I'd like to continue to go there. But were there any rough moments in the beginning when you took over the job, uh, your team was struggling early on, where you were like, man, I don't know if this is going to work out. Like, I don't know if I'm going to build this program into a winner. Or did you kind of just keep that confidence rolling through even – during those difficult moments? Well, I, I felt uh, I was always confident, um, you know, in, in what I was trying to do in terms of my head coaching philosophy. And um, uh, the, the, the one disappointing thing is we, we made progress the first year. We, uh, I think we, we beat uh, University of Dayton for the first time in a while uh, that first year. And then the second year, we won the regular season championship of the uh, MCC and, and went to the finals of the tournament, lost to Oklahoma City. 
the next year we had uh, most everybody back, and um, you know we we were hit with a rash of injuries. So we went from winning uh, uh, eight games the first year, twelve the second, and we thought we would like build on that, and we fell back to uh, winning eight again because of all the injuries and so forth. And then we went from you know when we got everybody back healthy the next year, uh, we went from eight and twenty-two to twenty-two and eight. So um, you know it was that's that one bump in the road that year with the injuries. Uh, I remember talking about Steve Wolf. He had a, a, a stress fracture of his foot. He missed a, a large portion of that. And um, and we had Gary Mass, I believe, had uh, uh, some injury. And, and uh, so it was um, that Barry Gary Mass was the year before. But uh, we had some injuries and, and illness and so forth. Eddie Johnson missed the year with uh, pancreatitis. And uh, so we had planned to improve on our our 12 win and, and regular season championship from year two uh, to year three, and, and it just didn't work out. But we, we rebounded and, and got the thing rolling where I thought it would be the next year when we went to the NCAA. Well, that's why people refer to you as the godfather because, you, you know, you just made it work. I don't know if you like that or not, but, you know, you're the godfather of Xavier basketball to a lot of people here. Um, did, well, I appreciate that. Yeah. Did you always kind of feel that commitment from the Xavier fan base? I think that's one thing for me, just being around the program now as long as I have been and I'm still living in Cincinnati is just I was always amazed even during the recruiting process how committed the fan base was to the team and how much they cared. And I think the same goes for the administration. You know, I wasn't around during the time you were coaching. Did you feel that early on? Is that something that drew you to the job and kind of gave you confidence throughout your time at X? Well, you know, I think yeah, uh, over time, yes. Uh, I think I had to do a little bit of uh, educating of uh, some people in the administration with regard to what it takes to get to where they wanted to get with the program. And, uh, you know, there wasn't a fundraising branch really uh at uh, as far as athletics were concerned or basketball and we instituted the all for one club and um, with the cooperation a lot of uh, alumni around the Cincinnati area were able to raise some funds and and do some things that and really uh make it a, a quality first first class program and those things I'll remember but it was it wasn't easy because um it, it's something that hadn't been done prior and times were changing and having come from the University of Pennsylvania and, and some other programs where, you know, that, that was already in place. Uh, it was a kind of an education a process that we had to go through to really, you know, sell this to the administration, to some alumni. But once the, we started to uh, reap some success, you know, the fan base grew. There was always great loyalty from the, the, the alumni and the fans of Xavier. So it's just a question that it was a, a bit of uh, dormant at the time. But it, uh, when we started you know, having some success and, and doing some of the things we did, uh, people just um, uh, jumped on the bandwagon, having maybe uh, been on on the ride but not really participating. Yeah. And then they and then they they came right back and and. I think it's grown to what it is now. Yeah, well, you guys were doing all the hard work. Was there a game at the Gardens at home? You remember where you had a sellout crowd, and you're like, "All right, finally, we got the, we got people excited here again." Well, you know, um, actually, the first game that we played in Cincinnati Gardens uh, was against St. Louis, 
And, um, you know, because it was new, because, it, you know, we kind of really hyped it up and so forth and so on, um, we had uh, almost a capacity crowd. We went from having like maybe, you know, 36, 3,800 uh, at the field house. And we had, uh, I think, between eight and 9,000 fans at Cincinnati Gardens for that first game. And we, we, beat, um, we beat St. Louis quite handily. And, um, and then we won, I think, our first 16 games uh, at the Cincinnati Gardens. So all, all that kind of, you know, stimulated interest, got people excited and so forth. And then, um, when we hosted, um, two games, uh, in the NIT in, in 84 and beat Ohio state at home, which was a, a real big game, uh, in terms of boosting our, our program and, and giving them the credibility that, uh, I think we were all working to get to and then beating Nebraska before we lost to Michigan. Uh, at Michigan by one to go to the final four of the NIT. I think that kind of, that whole sequence there was something that really um, started it going. Yeah, and you left the program in pretty good hands. Um, you know, w- when you left and went to Wake Forest, d- did you see the progression of where Xavier could go? Um, you know, did you feel good about where the program was, where it stood, and, and obviously uh, the steps that, you know, the programs made over years, you know, how'd you feel, you know, towards the end of your time at Xavier? Well, you know, um, I knew that when I left, the, the program was in good shape. I remember Ralph, uh, Ralph Lee telling me that, uh, he understood why I was leaving, but he said, you're, you're, you're leaving a, a 25 win team. And sure enough, they went 25 and four, I think that next year. So I felt good from a personal standpoint that I wasn't jumping ship and leaving the cupboard bare. Uh, but on the other hand, I wish I had that decision to do over again because I never would have left, mm-hmm. and I might still be there now. So, um, you know, it's um, you make decisions that uh, sometimes work, uh, sometimes they don't. Uh, but um, I wouldn't trade my experience with Xavier, and I wish I had to make the decision again, and uh, I would have stayed. Well, it's, it's always a discussion with the fan base of, you know, why doesn't a coach stay? You know, and I, I think a lot of people looking at – Chris Mack, who I played for, you know, they felt like he was that Xavier lifer, a guy from Cincinnati, played at Xavier, you know, ultimately ended up going to Louisville. Um, you know, it, it, you hate to hear that term, stepping stone job, which I don't think, you know, coaches think that way, you know, by any means about Xavier. Uh, but, you know, what do you think it would take for a, a coach to stay at Xavier through the long term? You know, maybe Travis Steele is that guy. Um, but it, yeah, it's just, it's been such an incredible lineage of coaches, but you know, what's it going to take to have a guy maybe stay here for the long term? Well, I don't want to be crass, but, um, part of the reason is it's not about the money. It's only about the money. Mm-hmm. And some of the, some of these programs can offer, you know, tremendous packages, uh, in some of these, uh, bigger leagues. Uh, when I say bigger, uh, at that time when I was there, uh, it was um, the Midwestern City Conference and it was the ACC. Um, and, you know, the Big East is one of the best basketball conferences, I think, in the country. Uh, but uh, there are other places uh, like a Louisville, like in Arizona, um, that have, you know, attracted people uh, for one reason or another, whether it be wanting to play at the highest level against the uh, you know, some of the best competition or, or the, the best competition as you perceive it. And, uh, but, you know, a lot's to be said for being happy. And if you're happy at a place, 
uh, you should give it serious thought about staying. And, um, and again, if if I had, because I was very happy at Xavier, uh, if I had to redo it, I would do that. Uh, I think there may be a, a coach or two that has done the same thing that probably feels the same way. And then as far as the uh, the Big East that Xavier is in right now, I mean, I've thoroughly enjoyed it as a basketball fan, um, you know, as a guy who used to train players uh, after school for a number of years and, and just watching the Big East and the teams that are coming into the Cintas Center week in and week out during the regular season is just phenomenal. And, and a lot of the Xavier fans are going to hate me for this, but Villanova is probably my favorite team to watch. So maybe outside of Xavier, who else in the Big East? Are there any teams, the way that they play, that you really enjoy watching? Uh, yeah, my alma mater, UConn, who's going to be joining uh, the Big East this year again, or rejoining it, I should say. And, um, you know, having having been in Philadelphia in the Big Five, you know, I've, I've always uh, enjoyed watching Villanova. And, um, you know, Rolly Massimino uh, was a very good friend of mine. I coached his son, Tommy, as a freshman at Penn. And... Um, you know, I have great respect for Jay Wright and the job that he does. So um, those are two teams in particular that I enjoy, you know, watching play in addition to Xavier. So I, I've been trying to get in touch with Jay Wright, not because I, I, well, I'd love to do an interview with him, but I'm just trying to figure out where he shops and gets all his suits from because that guy, this guy's always dressed to the nines, man. He's not just an incredible coach, man. He's got the best uh, dress staff, I think, in the country. Well, uh, you talk about my his contract, uh, I think um, – <laughs> more than helps him with his wardrobe trust me it can service that right yes um all right so i i, I want to just get to uh you know your playing career a little bit as well I, you know i didn't see you play you know what was your style of game like when i was a player yes uh you were much too young brad to see me play when i was playing well, that's what i gotta ask uh, i was looking it up i was trying to, i was trying to find game tape and i couldn't find it i was getting dodged everywhere <laughs> i was going yeah um yeah, I was I was a uh, a deep shooter. You know, there wasn't a three point line when I was playing. Uh, had there been, I would have scored quite a few more points because uh, a lot of the shots that I took were from from well beyond the three point line. Uh, but I I uh, was heavily recruited out of high school, and, and I signed with St. John's uh, my freshman year, um, and I averaged 15 points a game on the uh, on the freshman team before freshman eligible and then uh, transferred to UConn uh, for a number of reasons. And then um, uh, when I left there, I was uh, fourth all-time league scorer and uh, went uh, from there. I signed a contract with the Pittsburgh Condors at the ABA. Uh, played there for what I call as a cup of coffee and then um, played some uh, in New York State Professional League for a while. And then... Uh, I gave up playing uh, after I coached a year in high school and got into the college game, and that was it. So, um, uh, you know, I'd always I'd always played against uh, people that were were older than I was and better than I was when I was a kid. And then I used to having grown up right around uh, about forty minutes outside New York City, I would go down to New York City to play in the playgrounds there, and, uh, in Stanford, Connecticut, and uh, Norfolk, Connecticut, New Haven, Connecticut, Bridgeport. Um, they used to travel around and play in all kinds of tournaments and summer leagues. And anytime I could get a pickup game at a place where there were better players, um, that's what I did. Um, unfortunately, I don't know how 
how many people do that on their own anymore. It's more this AAU stuff and these travel teams and so forth. So it's, I think people get to, to play against the competition uh, that I did when I that I had a seek out program with these traveling teams. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's where I picked up my love for the game was going out and playing pickup. And I grew up in a small town in Michigan, so, you know, there weren't that many talented players that I could play with. So I would find courts in Saginaw and Flint. Occasionally we'd go down to Detroit when my dad would have work down there. And that was where, you know, I grew my love for the game. You don't see that as much anymore with these guys. I mean, AAU helped me out a lot, you know, getting connected with the right people to help get me to the college level. But – yeah, I used to play pickup nonstop. And I, I remember one time at Xavier, I felt like I was getting, I, I don't know if burnout's the right word, but I had a trip to New York. Uh, I ended up missing my flight, and I went down and played a pickup game. I played from probably 5 p.m. to about midnight, and it just, like, reignited my love for the game of basketball. So I always say to any player that's going through a little bit of a burnout stage, go play pickup, go have fun playing, and then kind of get back to, to what you're doing. I have a selfish question for you because um, I saw that you coached with Chuck Daly. Is that is that correct? Yes. So I'm a huge I, Pistons fan. My dad uh, was a reporter in Detroit during the Bad Boys era. I've watched a million Piston documentaries. I, I just have to ask you about Chuck Daly, if you got any great stories about him. Well, Chuck Chuck is um, was one of my closest friends and also being my boss when I, was, I worked for him for two and a half years at Penn. And then uh, stayed close with him. He offered me a job twice in the NBA, once when he first went to Cleveland. Uh, but he didn't want to uh, bring me there then because he, he said he wasn't sure how long he was going to be there. Mm. And I think he was there something like uh, 93 days or something. So, um, And then he, he offered me a job with the Pistons. And uh, we had just uh, my son was just born. So there was a, a, a time where I just couldn't take the job. So... Um, you know, he, he was uh, he was one of the most organized guys I've ever been around. I've learned a great deal. I think a lot of things in terms of the organization of a program that I learned from him, I brought to Xavier and instituted in uh, our own program. But uh, I'll never forget, you know, uh, two stories. Um, when I first got there, uh, I said, well, Chuck, you know, what time uh, – uh, do you want me to come to the office? He says, well, uh, I get in around nine and I just have one rule that's beat me in. <laughs> and so, uh, I got to the office about four minutes after nine one morning because of traffic coming from New Jersey and he was in and I walked in four minutes after nine and he said, good afternoon. <laughs> so that, that kind of led me that, you know, I knew what the hell I had to do. Um, and then another story, you know, it, in the Ivy League at the time, uh, there was obviously uh, very tough admission standards. That uh, you didn't have scholarships; it was financial aid based on need. Where you also had work study and uh, loan involved in your whatever scholarship you would get. And going from a scholarship school, I, uh, I was an assistant at UConn and William and Mary, where we get full scholarships. Going from that situation uh, to a financial aid based on need situation there's a whole lot of stuff you gotta you gotta do parents gonna have confidential statements this that the other and uh, i was at the on the job about a week and a half or so two weeks and chuck called me in the office and said how's it going 
I said, it's, it's going good. I said, but Chuck, there's so much stuff you got to, you got to learn. It's almost like you have enough time. You don't have enough time in the day. He said, we'll get in earlier. So that was another indication as to how we, how we did that. You know, he just, he brought the Duke philosophy uh, to Boston college when he went there as the head coach and then to Penn. And uh, there was another Duke guy that it was the athletic director at the time at Penn it was Fred Shabel was also a Duke, Duke assistant later went to become the head coach at UConn and recruited me out of high school. Um, so it, there was very much a business, almost like an IBM type of atmosphere mm-hmm. in the program in terms of organization. And, um, you know, those are the things that I learned from Chuck. All right. For the hoops junkies out there like myself, um, you know, talk about maybe some of the principles that you brought to Xavier. I mean, you mentioned you brought maybe some philosophies of Chuck Daly, but as far as X's and O's, the way that you operated, uh, can you give me a glimpse into maybe what a practice was like with you or what you were consistently kind of preaching to the team? Well, um, I had two, two kind of basic rules or principles that I wanted the players uh, to do. And that's number one is play hard. And number two is have fun. And that's what we used to try to do at practice. We, you know, we were going to, we were going to practice hard and we were going to play hard and we're going to have fun and we're going to play together. And, um, those are the things from a, from an X and O or a philosophical standpoint from a pure basketball sense. Uh, that's what we try to get, get across. And I think we, we did it. We, we wanted our players to have, um, you know, operate in a first-class manner and present themselves in a first-class manner. I'll never forget, <clears throat> for when I first got to, to Xavier, we had a senior um, uh, by the name of Keith Walker, who was a very good point guard. And uh, I, w- I walked by the gym one day. They were playing a pickup in the gym prior to the start of the season, and he had these these jeans on that were frayed at about the knee, and then the front of them would slip right up almost to his his groin. And, I mean, he looked like a ragamuffin. And I, I said, Keith, I said, what the hell is this? He says, well, I don't have any shorts. So I said to Terry Koppler, our, our trainer and equipment manager, I said, Terry, get him a pair of shorts. I said, I don't want to see you in the gym representing our program just like that again. And if you are, you're not going to be with us very long. And um, it never happened again. And, and, and we we pretty much got that that principle across to everybody else. And that's what we did. We we would dress in a first class manner and act in a first class uh, class manner. We travel in a first class manner, and we wanted our players to take pride in that. All right. Well, hey, Coach. Thanks so much for your time. I, I I wish we could have a shooting contest with each other. I do I do wish that. I don't shoot as much as I used to. I'd imagine you probably don't either. But I wish we could go back nope. in time and, and do a shooting contest at some level. If there was anything I could ever do as a player, it, it was at least shoot the ball. So I don't I don't know. Right, I'll, I'll, you you probably you might have had me beat. I don't know. No no no. Let us correct that. It's not might have had you beat. <laughs> all right. All, all I would do is tell you. That when you came to that shooting contest, bring your wallet. <laughs> you were gonna get in my head. You were gonna get in my head. I like. That. Oh no, it's not quite. It's all over. Tell me. <laughs> I will. I will. You know what I used to tell the guys I play with? If you want an assist, pass me the ball. <laughs> That's pretty good. So. I, ne- I never use that line. Uh, mine was why pass when you can shoot. I always call. I call it the why plan. 
<laughs> I, I understand. <laughs> well, if I didn't have the ball, I'd throw up my sneakers. Yeah. Well, you know, during my time, I'd only touch it so many times. When I get it, for me, it was like a hot potato to the rim. Well, uh, they, they made, my teammates made sure that I got to hold the ball yeah. a significant amount of time. I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, hey, thanks for jumping on. I know we tried to connect last week. It was on me. I w I'm not a technical guy. I was using a new software. It wasn't coming through. We got it fixed up. So thanks so much for your time. You know, Xavier, no problem. Xavier Nation still loves you, and they're definitely going to love some of the stories that you shared here. So, uh, you know, best of luck with everything you got I going on. I appreciate it. And I hope the Miami Heat continue to play well. Thank you very much, Brad. Okay, see you, Coach. Enjoy being with you. All right, I just want to thank everybody for listening to this podcast. And if you enjoyed it, please, please leave a review and keep tuning in to more Xavier Basketball 100 Years Podcast Interviews. Brown against Burton. And this the UC Bearcats are number one in the country, number two in their own city.